Our first speaker tonight is going to be a slight change and will be Rob Hopkins. Um, in a, described recently in a TED lecture as the gentle giant of the Green Movement, he slightly cringes as I repeat that, is the co-founder of the Transition Network for, in 2006. Um, he was the author of the Transition Handbook for Oil Independence to Local Resilience and is essentially, for the layman, the brainchild behind Transition Towns. Um, most recently I came across him at Hay Festival sporting a piece of cake explaining to everybody how the local economy works with raisins and all. Um, he's going to give us an idea tonight of actually regeneration for real through the Transition Town Network. Thank you. Good evening and uh, thank you very much. Well, um, Bristol's my... my Bristol's my hometown. Really. I lived here from the age of 13, and uh, when I was growing up here, it's going to make me sound terribly old, I'm not that old, but when I, grew, was, when I was growing up in Bristol, the area around here still looked like this. This picture was taken in the early 70s, but uh, we used to come off, get out of school and go down there and wander around in these fantastic old warehouses and things all falling to bits and take photos and drink cider and get up to no good down there. It was fantastic. And, uh, but what's happened since then, obviously, is there's been a huge amount of regeneration that has gone uh, on in that area. And I suppose what I want to do is to really look at uh, how we might think about regeneration uh, in the times that we're in now. Because uh, although there are some many good things that have come out of the regeneration of, of that part of Bristol over the years, I think we can also look at that form of regeneration as like an extractive industry where, where, where capital has come in from around the world and has largely sort of sucked a lot of the, the benefits that have been generated from that out from, from Bristol. And all the things that it could have made possible uh, have, have largely kind of uh, have, have largely disappeared. And I suppose the question is really, would we do it like that again now? Uh, the, that re regeneration was done at a time when credit was, was, was very much available, when cheap energy was what underpinned how the world uh, worked, uh, when we didn't have to worry about climate change. Uh, all those things are very, very different now. We live in a very, very different world. And I think if we were looking now, particularly in terms of what's happening with the, the debt crisis that's just starting to unravel, that kind of my voice is doing all kinds of strange things. <laughs> Is it sounding as strange for you as it is for me up here? <laughs> I'm sure it'll settle down in a minute. Um, because I think we are reaching the end of the age of growth as we've understood it uh, up until this point. Uh, and so when we think about regeneration from this point moving forward, I think we need to think about it in very different ways. So transition, which I've been involved with for the last five or six years, has really been an approach which is about what it looks like if, as communities, we start to try and take the lead on this. Because ultimately, there is no cavalry coming to the rescue of economies such as Bristol or any of the places that any of you live now. I think we're in entering increasingly uncertain times, increasingly choppy waters, and there isn't going to be the sort of great influx of cheap credit and so on that we've had up until now. We are that cavalry for the places that we live. So what does that actually look like uh, on the ground? What does that look like on, on a day-to-day -day basis? So transition has started really as a bottom-up, people-led response, which is about resilience. How do we make our communities more resilient? And I just want to show you a very short little clip from a film called In Transition 2.0, which we released recently and just showed this afternoon, which kind of captures uh, how transition approaches the idea of, of local economies. You can think of the economy as a place that you live as being like a big bucket. And 
into that bucket go pensions, wages, grants, and so on. But at the moment, things like supermarkets, paying our electricity bills, internet shopping, are all drilling holes into that bucket. That means that our accumulated wealth and its potential are just draining away. And everywhere that there's a leak in that bucket is a potential local livelihood, potential local business, and trading opportunity for, for young people. So things like supporting community energy companies, supporting local food where it's available and boosting that where it isn't, and using local currencies are all very skillful ways of plugging the leaks in that bucket. So what I'd like to do is to offer six sort of principles that might underpin how we think about regeneration as we move forward uh, in, in the 21st century. And the first one is resilience. And it's really, a, resilience can be seen as quite a complicated sort of highfalutin idea, but Ian Dowie, who used to be the manager of Crystal Palace, summed up resilience very nicely. He described it as being bounce-back ability. And I think that's what we really need in, in, in our economies as they increasingly are buffeted here and there by volatile energy prices and, and, and so on. This photograph is from uh, transition town Tooting in London who held a huge big street carnival called the Trash Catchers Carnival which got hundreds and hundreds of people out on the streets. They used a million old plastic bags and crisp packets for all the things. At the end, when they all sat down with, with everyone who'd been involved and said, what are your reflections on that? They said, if we can do that, we can do anything. And that's a key part of resilience, I think, having communities who feel that sense of, of, of possibility. So a few things just to give you a taste of what transition groups are doing around resilience, I think. Because resilience in transition starts from the bottom up. You and I come together in the places that we live. We say, right, what, what are we passionate about? What, where, where do we feel we want to make stuff happen? This is in Bath, transition Bath, Hedgemead Park in Bath, big circular flower bed. Council weren't using it anymore. The transition group came together, taken that over and now call it Vegmead Park and a growing produce right in the middle of the town with, with, with volunteers. In uh, Kilburn, on Kilburn Underground Station, the local transition group there have taken over that part of the underground station. They are the first London underground station where you can get off and pick some salads and strawberries on your way home. They're the first London underground station with apples growing on the platform. And this kind of thing can only really come from the bottom up by people coming together. This can't really be dictated from the top down. This is ordinary people deciding they want to take control. It's what we call engaged optimism. What does it look like when we, when we apply that? Also, when we're thinking about regeneration, I think the whole idea of the whole area of food is really, really central. This is a project, not a transition thing, but this is in Hackney, growing communities. Uh, they supply vegetable boxes to about 3,000 people a week, but they also have set up lots of uh, market gardens growing in and around Hackney. They have what they call patchwork farming, where people grow on small bits of ground all around Hackney. I think when we're looking at regeneration in the urban context, weaving that through, uh, what we do is really, really important. And that's another new idea. This, I love this, is a photograph of the Bristol and District Market Gardeners Association in 1897. This was a time when all through Bristol, Bristol was ringed by market gardens who were actually one of the key employers uh, in the city. And a lot of the development was sort of, uh, of, of Bristol was followed by, by the market gardens. And it's, it's something which I think we'll start to increasingly see social enterprises setting up. And I was reading the other day in Scotland now, they're looking at legislation which would make, which where there would be a, an assumption in favour of using undeveloped land in cities for growing food. The second one is about low carbon, which I'm sure Kevin will, will talk about more than myself, but uh, obviously any new development, any regeneration has to be underpinned by, by being low carbon. I love this, the, this house and the one next to it are in Ebervale in Wales. And what's really exciting about them is that they're called local passive houses. 
So they're built using 80%, one of them using 90% local materials, but they're built to a passive house standard. And I think in the same way when we talk about our leaky bucket, uh, the whole idea of local food, you know, we're quite used to the idea of why we use local food, because it's about supporting local growers and reducing food miles and so on. I think we can apply the same thing to building materials, the whole idea of building miles. That if we can start to build using more local materials, then we start to create a whole uh, number of industries that can, that, that, that can emerge to support that. And this is one of the things that they're looking at here in Wales. And often there are materials that are actually carbon negative. When we're looking at straw bale, looking at timber, materials that, that lock carbon into buildings, uh, and most of the buildings around here are sort of steel and glass, these kind of materials. Uh, and the potential for, for getting people engaged in and, and producing those is really exciting, I think. When you go to Charing Cross Underground Station, the mural along the side is the old woodcuts showing how Charing Cross was built. Uh, all the different trades that it took uh, to do that, the, 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 the stonemasons and the people making the mortar and so on. And I think when we're looking at regeneration on a kind of an urban scale, we should be looking at having all kinds of apprenticeships and getting people in, learning the different skills. And these kind of more local materials give a lot more scope for that, I think, for, for people to come in relatively unskilled and to pick them up quite quickly. So again, some of the things that, that transition groups are doing from, from the bottom up in terms of uh, reducing carbon and so on. In Belsize in London, Transition Belsize started something called Draft Busters. The idea is that if you've got a house with drafty windows and doors, uh, you have a sort of like a Tupperware party in your house. So you, some people come around and you learn how to draft-proof a house by draft-proofing that house, and then you get given as a going-home present enough stuff to draft-proof your own house. Uh, and it's taken off all over the place. And the beauty with something like Transition, which is now happening in thousands of communities uh, around the world, is that when an idea settles in in one place, it spreads very, very quickly. They're like little research and development units. So this is something which is now being done in all over the place through Transition. Very, very simple idea, but a very active way of reducing carbon. In Malvern, Transition Malvern, they have these old gas lamps that inspired C.S. Lewis when he wrote the Narnia books. The, the lamp that Lucy sees when she goes into Narnia was inspired by those ones in Malvern. Uh, but they cost a fortune, they're not very efficient. Transition Malvern have made them all over, so they use 84% less gas, and they have this idea that they want to, uh, they're going to set up an anaerobic digestion scheme using local food to power the lamps. Again, this is the kind of thing that people at the grassroots can do by coming together with this idea of engaged optimism. What are they passionate about? So the third one is natural limits. You know, how do we, when we think about regeneration, do it in such a way that it respects the limits, that it's a one-planet development? And there's lots of thought gone into what one-planet development looks like, which is very exciting. Again, thinking about that, what that might look like uh, from the community scale, one of the things that we've been involved with in transition is this, this thing called trans transition streets. So transition streets is a very simple idea that you get together with your neighbours, the people around you, uh, you go out on the street, you knock on doors, you get a group of people together, you meet seven times, you look at water one week, food another week. But what we found is that actually uh, uh, in, in, in the place where it was piloted first, that on average people reduce their carbon by about 1.3 tonnes, save themselves about £600 a year. Uh, but when, you, when they talk to each other about it, when, they, when, when you ask them why they do it and what they get out of it, they don't mention climate change, they don't mention oil depletion or economic issues. What they talk about is their neighbours, getting to know their neighbours, new relationships, friends, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and when I meet people, they, 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 all they talk about is I now know Dave down the end of the road, Sandra over here, we're doing this together. It's about bringing people together. That, that bringing communities together, all the other stuff is almost kind of incidental, I think. The next one is localization. 
And I think what we're going to be seeing as we enter the age of increasing energy volatility, we're already seeing it. John Lewis reported last year the takings at their out-of-town stores were down by 12%, whereas they were steady uh, in town. As the price of energy starts to increase and the amount you have to pay to, to, to do stuff starts to increase, the economics start to change. In uh, 2008, when oil hit $147 a barrel, was the first time it was cheaper for America to produce its own steel than import it from China. And I think what we'll move towards is a far, uh, is a near heavy, far light economy where things that are heavy are produced more locally, and things that are lighter, like ideas and all that sort of stuff, uh, are transported more uh, over greater distance. So I think it's really this, the, the idea of localization feels to me like a really big idea of our time and a very practical uh, idea in that sense. And it's really about starting to see community resilience as economic development. Making our communities more resilient could actually be the making of them uh, economically and lead to a, the, 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 the rediscovery of local building materials could really be a sort of um, uh, a, a vernacular building could be the making of us in many ways. I drove past Broadmead today uh, the new shopping in the middle of Broadmead looks exactly like the new one that's just opened in Exeter uh, and looks exactly like it does in many other places. We've got this sort of European standard uh, construction in many ways and I think local materials bring us to a, a more vernacular kind of a sense. So this idea about uh, localization, so Transition can pick that up. This is in, in Yorkshire in a place called Slathwaite or Slowit. Uh, their local greengrocer shut down. The local community raised £15,000 to take over the grocers. But it's been more than just a shop. It's been a catalyst for all kinds of stuff around this idea of localisation. They found when they were running their own shop that they needed to, when they were buying garlic wholesale, it was all coming from China. They thought, this is ridiculous. We can grow garlic uh, in Yorkshire. And uh, so they started something called the Slathwaite Garlic Challenge, where any time you went in the shop to buy anything, they gave you a clove of garlic and said, take it home, grow it, and we'll buy it back off you. If nothing, we'll be self-sufficient in garlic within two years. <laughs> what actually happened was uh, that a cooperative was then set up called Edibles to grow stuff to supply the shop. There's now a wind uh, cooperative set up in the area. And uh, all the local producers in the area recently came together to launch what they called Colnucopia, because it's the Coln Valley. And they issued what they called a Declaration of Independence from the Global Food System, which may be slightly premature, but it uh, <laughs> shows the scale of ambition, which I rather admire. This is in Topsham, where they've been doing transition for a year. And they said, what is it that brings people together in this town? Is it peak oil? Is it climate change? Might it be beer? It may be beer, actually. So they launched a brewery. They raised £40,000 from local people as a, as a community-run business. This kind of relocalisation of the economy can actually do so much in terms of bringing people together and strengthening that economy. And the same in Norwich, out of transition. Norwich emerged farm share as a community-supported agriculture scheme uh, with about 80, 90 members now aiming for 200, growing food in, in a way that, 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 that people are involved in. But that didn't just emerge out of nowhere. They did a study called Can Norwich Feed Itself and looked at the town in the context of what happens around it uh, and then saw that as being one of the key pieces of, of, of the puzzle they needed to put into place. Community assets, I think, should also be another part of how we think about regeneration. Because actually, uh, this is Coin Street in London, which is a fantastic example of development which is done by the community itself. All too often, community is done by developers who come in, acquire the site, develop it, uh, extract the profit, leave the, the, the people there with, with the development, and that's the end of the story. At Coin Street, the community owns the site and the development. Every stage of the development benefits the people who live there. The money that it generates is fed back into the development. And I think as we enter a time when there's going to be much less money around, uh, we're going to be needing to start to think like that. This is in Lewis, where they decided they wanted to 
put re, uh, renewable energy in place. Community solar power station raised £350,000 from local people to put that in place in a way that the energy infrastructure is owned by local people. Bath, Bath and West Community Energy, which emerged from Transition Bath, recently raised over £700,000 in shares and have set up in such a way that people can shift their pensions into a local community-run energy company, which is a really, really exciting development. Social enterprise, that this thing should be not just for personal profit, but that, that we should be looking at regeneration in such a way that it triggers a whole new uh, economy for the places that we live. Handmade bakery, again, up in Slough, a way of where local people can, can, can invest in. They needed to raise money to, uh, to expand the business. They issued a bread bond. They said, we'll give you 6% interest on your loan to us, thank you very much, but we'll pay you it in bread, which costs them 2%. Fantastic. This is the, the Dunbar Community Bakery, similar model. Absolutely dreadful pun on their poster. Your bakery needs you. I do apologise. The Bristol Pound, which is about to launch uh, as, a, as a currency, complementary currency scheme for this city, is again a really exciting tool for starting to block uh, the leaks in the, in the leaky bucket and start to really look at how you make uh, money support the resilience uh, of the city of Bristol. So I just want to, as, as a closing thing, really talk about a project that, that I'm involved with where we're trying to do this, really. Uh, I'm based down in Totnes, and uh, all too often we hear projects about communities trying to acquire and develop sites, and it just taking forever. And we've been involved for about four, four years. This is the old milk processing plant in the 1930s, next to the railway station in the town. In the 1960s, it was producing a tonne of clotted cream a day, milk from 1,300 farms. Uh, and then in 2007, it closed. 160 jobs were lost. And the community came together to say, we want to bring this site into community ownership to develop it in the way that I've been talking about. Uh, and the, the site's owners have largely sort of dismissed it for, for during that period of time. We did designs, we did all kinds of stuff for, that, for, for the proposal in order to move it forward. Weren't getting anywhere with the owners at all. Three months ago, we started a campaign to try and pressure them into, uh, in, in, into taking us seriously and engaging with us. Uh, we met with Jonathan Dimbleby, who's one of the patrons, 350 people down there one morning for a big photograph, big public events. We ran a campaign which included interviewing loads and loads of people in the town, asking them what, what, what they would like to see happen on the site. Uh, and what's happened is uh, that about three weeks ago we met with the owners uh, and it seems to be all of a sudden everything has shifted. They said, well, we are committed to working with you partly because we have no choice. <laughs> And I think when you can generate that sort of community momentum around, based around this idea, all sorts of things are possible. So to pull it together, really, I would just like to say, I think that when we look at regeneration, we should be looking at it... Uh, well, it's all to, I'll start that again. I think when we think about regeneration, uh, it's accepted now that we would do an environmental impact assessment. How is this regeneration going to impact the, the local environment? I think we also need to be looking at doing a resilience impact assessment. How is this regeneration going to help this community? How is it going to create as many jobs and training opportunities for our young people? How is it going to create as many opportunities for people to invest inward in, into this place as we can? How can we start to plug as many of the leaks as possible by doing what we're doing here? What kind of a legacy is it going to, to, to leave? There's all kinds of tools available now through the localism stuff, but at the same time we have this push for growth which is largely at the expense of communities rather than seeing communities as what can deliver this. And I think there's a, there's a huge missed opportunity here. Yes, and so there's, I, for me it's really about how we put resilience central, how we put communities central, and then we can really create something which is going to uh, be a fitting 
form of development for the next 20, 30 years because the next 20, 30 years are going to be very, very different from the 20, 30 years that we've just had. Thank you very much. <laughs>